Welcome to Navigating Education, the podcast, episode 30. Can't believe we're already 30 episodes on this podcast. And today we're going to be talking about education futuring. What is it and how um, it can benefit school leaders and teachers to navigate the present and future of education. And I am here with someone that is uh, has written about this, researched this extensively, and has been in education for a long time and has featured throughout their career and is Dr. Richard Bernardo. And thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, it's gonna be great to talk to you about this. Um, and his bio, he'd been in education for 52 years. he begun as a social studies teacher and he worked his way up through the district, working as curriculum specialist, dean of students, um, basically almost every position at the district office, it seems like. And then uh, he is currently an uh, uh, associate professor uh, for social studies at Dowling College and, and now a uh, later associate professor at the College of Educational Doctoral Program. Um, and then I don't, you're currently, oh yeah, now you're currently an adjunct professor at St. John's and at the University of Stony Brook. So I'll have you talk a little bit more about that in a moment in our first question, but you know, he's a really wealth of knowledge and I'm really excited to talk about it. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be able to speak to you again. I enjoyed our last conversation and I hope we have many more to come. Yeah, of course. And so I kind of did a summary of kind of where you're currently at in education, how you got there. So tell me kind of, you know, your journey a little bit and talk to me a little bit about, you know, what are you currently doing in education? Yeah, oh, my professional journey is 52 years old long. So that's longer than, certainly longer, longer than uh, your, uh, since you've been born and probably most of you, your listeners, I would imagine. Uh, the only thing I would uh, correct to what you said was that I went from Downing College over to St. John's University in, in their uh, doctoral program as a professor there. And I'm still there as an adjunct, but I was there as full-time. But I'm also working now at Stony Brook, as you, as you mentioned, in the in higher education piece. And that was kind of like a parallel career. I guess there's a three-part parallel career going on between among uh, my K-12 life and, and my higher education life in two different, and in, in my higher education life and my consulting uh, and writing life. And they all cross section with each other. Um, if you want to go back to the beginning of the professional piece, um, it begins certainly with my deep interest in social studies education at the time and in my deeper interest even in, in uh, true, although I didn't know it was called that at the time, constructivist experiential teaching, particularly where I really became, I got uh, extremely interested in, and I dare say, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, expert at uh, writing simulations and experiential uh, uh, units and so forth and uh, peddling them pub uh, with publishers over in San Diego, as a matter of fact, my first publisher was in San Diego, but other ones uh, across the country. And uh, that, I guess it was a lot of people early on would say that was my mark, but as I got a little older and a little more uh, less wise, I think I decided to go into edu educational administration. And that's where all those other different uh, jobs came in, which was a blessing and a curse in certain respects, because I, you're right, I did about everything except uh, business. I don't, I don't even know how to balance a check. But I was, <laughs> I was fortunate enough and along the lines of the conversation you and I had before we uh, began broadcasting that uh, 
I was really fortunate to have a chance to, uh, to create and to create with people and to empower them to, to empower teachers, first of all, and, and also uh, leadership to uh, empower each other to uh, consider what they do with, with, with schooling and school reform. So, you know, my deepest passions remain curriculum design, but they might be overshadowed now as uh, my deep interest in school reform, systemic school reform, uh, which is characterized by the futuring premise. Now, if you want to understand where the futuring thing came from, uh, if you want me to go forward with that, uh, Matt, that's I was trying to figure out how to answer that uh, succinctly, and that's hard for me. I mean, I've always been interested in the idea of time. I was the kind of kid who liked to watch the time travel shows and read time, the time machine and things like that. Uh, Back to the Future is probably one of my three favorite movies of all time. Uh, and so I've always been interested in the what if. In fact, a lot of the simulations I write are, um, or I call presidential decision-making series, where I say, well, what if JFK had decided to do this instead of that? Would we still be here today to talk about whether we had a world or not, given what was going on historically then, those kinds of things. And so this whole concept of time and futuring and causality is something I've been always interested in. If we had done this instead of that, it's like watching the last Sunday football game, uh, Sunday afternoon football games, when my Giants should have gone left instead of gone right and lost the game in the last minute. Was, of the was there a point in your career that you felt like this was something that you want to study more or you know just talk about more as it it seems like it's been a lifelong curiosity was there like a point in your career where you felt like hey I really want to you know talk about this and you know get it into schools to help with school reform if you're looking at a pivot point a concrete pivot point I was fortunate enough I forget how many years ago this was to uh, be invited to be in a curriculum uh, writing project with two other uh, educators from from Long Island and the, and the course was called Futuring and I didn't even, I didn't know the word the concept. I clearly understood, but I didn't know what the word meant. And what we did was we wrote a curriculum about futuring. So they've been futuring courses back probably 25, 30 years, uh, at least that long in, in high schools. And even in some K-6 things I'm aware of, um, where basically what uh, educators are trying to do is come up with our activities and link those with uh, deeper problem-solving skills, higher-order skills, if you want to use the old-fashioned word, uh, to recognize what I call the four Ps. Right. Uh, when it comes to the future, and this is not an original thought altogether, when it comes to the future, there are, there are four Ps. One is what's possible. The next P is what's probable. The third one is what's preferable. And the fourth one is what's projected, which is one that fascinates me the most, but most anything happens when it's possible. And if you get students and teachers to realize that, that, that helps. But what's more, much more important are the remaining three Ps, which is especially beginning with, with what's probable, which talks about the idea of alternative futures. The future is not a line. Time is not a line really, although we think of it that way. It's always an array of futures. And so the idea then, when I first was acquainted with it, was to enable uh, educators to enable students to recognize that 
things don't have to be the way they, they are or will be because we can make the choices now and decisions now that, that might more nearly make them a preferable future. Mm. And, you know, folks, and we, we, we all do, we all, by the way, futuring is, I think, uh, not that good a grammarian, but it's certainly, it's a noun, it's a verb, it's a gerund, <laughs> probably something else too. So I use the word loosely to uh, really change folks dispositions about what what the future might be in terms of what you prefer. If you think about what you think is probably going to happen, and then you think about whether you prefer those things to happen, if there's a gap between them, and it almost always is, how can we problem solve to more nearly bring make the probables align with what the pre preferable is? And if you want to take it out of the next to the next uh, dimension, you know, What's the, what's the, what, are, what does education look like 50 years from now? And the George Jetson, that's a bad analogy, <laughs> but the George Jetson futures thing really obtained. I mean, 10 years ago, driverless cars were just a, an idea. And now we have driverless cars. There's a great book out there right now called The Future is Happening Faster Than You Think uh, by Diamandis. And uh, he's, he's, he and his co-author talk about the array of things that are going on that we're not even aware of that are going to influence, not only technologically, but economically and uh, sociologically that we have to prepare our students for. And let me just jump to one thing real fast. I'm, I may get in trouble for this, not with you, but with, with whomever is listening. <laughs> I would argue that I would propose that uh, educators, especially educational leaders were not, did not future for the pandemic. No, I, I agree with you in terms of where K-12 was. I'm actually reading a doctoral uh, dissertation about the preparedness of teachers in rural areas for a natural disaster, i.e. a pandemic. And they're talking a lot about that in um, their review of the literature, as well as in their um, just kind of the surveys that they're going to send out to um, rural educators throughout the state of Iowa. So it's, I, I, I think that this is something that is, no one was prepared for it. And only the schools I felt that were prepared for this had the technological infrastructure and the organizational infrastructure and the capacity to use that technology. And those were scattered throughout the country, but they weren't um, large, I think, district-wide. Um, maybe some small districts, but I don't think any large, really large districts were necessarily prepared to, um, you know, move between the different settings as well as to have the organizational structures in place to handle the ever-changing um, safety precautions and, and um, just you know, the series of events that has gone, you know, gone by since the last 18 months. I mean, it's, it's, I 100% agree with you. And, um, and I think that why I want to talk about featuring today is I think that as educational organizations, we, we need to prepare leaders, teachers, as well as I think the community needs to understand, you know, how can we better prepare our schools for something that is going to happen in the future that could be, a future pandemic, a natural disaster, um, 
you know, who yes. knows, the electrical grid may be hacked yes. and it may be shut down. Yes. Um, you know, yes. climate change. I mean, these are all things yes. that are going to be exponentially, um, there's risks and that's, you know, as decision makers and then people within a school community, yes. we have to work together and ensure that if these things happen, that, you know, learning can continue safely and that, um, you know, schools remain a, you know, a strong institution within our community, they hold it together. Absolutely. I, I, uh, speaking to the audience and saying, I didn't pay Matt to say that, but everything Matt said is what I would have said if he hadn't said. <laughs> so, so we're two brothers from, this, from a different mother on, on, on those things, especially if you heard the words that he used, organizational structure, capacity. I would add the term dispositions. There was one uh, person, a superintendent whom I knew, who I know, uh, who happened to, be a, happened to be a superintendent in a rural district, very poor district. And I said to him in February 19, I said, what are you doing? He said, what do you mean, what am I doing? He says, I said, there's a pandemic coming. What are you doing? He says, what do you mean what I'm doing? It's only gonna hit the metropolitan area. It's not gonna, going to hit us. I said, I don't think so. I think schools are going to be closed. I went through this whole litany. And he said, well, uh, all my students have Chromebooks. I said, okay, that's fine. He says, but he said, but every, almost everyone lives in trailers and they don't have Wi-Fi. Really? So what are you going to do? And hadn't hadn't crossed his mind. Now, if you want to roll that back a bit, uh, and he's a very excellent educator. I don't want to knock the person, the man altogether. But I really, to me, I use that as an example of how most educators likely approach most emergencies or most issues or most. Uh, probable futures. When you talk about climate change, at minimum, that's a probable future. And so we're talking about, again, that capacity word. Now, except the capacity word, the culture's capacity to respond to uh, through dialogue, through uh, uh, collaborative leadership, through uh, systems thinking, uh, through creativity uh, uh, don't exist in lots of places. And if they do exist, they're still moderated or they're controlled by the extent to which they know how to future. And there are, believe it or not, there are ways to pre, uh, forecast the future. Businesses use forecasting skills. The closest we, I think we do, every morning I get, one of the first things I do when I get up, I say to Alexa, what's the weather today? <laughs> She's telling me right now, actually. Alexa, off. So we're, I'm, we're preparing for today's future. You know, if you think about it, we all future all day long. I mean, squirrels bury acorns in the fall. They're futuring. Yeah. Farmers, you know, plow their plow their fields under to enrich the soil for the coming year. We do those kinds of things, but what do we do on, and when we try to decision make? The words you use to not only maintain what we do in our educational systems, but recreate those systems to meet climate change issues, to meet um, the strife and, and the discord among us, mm -hmm. to understand it more clearly. Because if you threw a, a rock called strife into a pond, the ripple effects from that strife rock 
have to be calculated and somehow controlled for if we think that it's going to overwhelm the pond. Yeah, no, then, no, all those things appear to be, you know, we're doing it all the time. And I think that on the technology aspect of it is that if you ever read a big, uh, if you ever read a book about big data, you can essentially predict by looking yes. at the big data trends. Um, for example, um, you can, for example, by just looking at the Google data, you can predict, um, you know, possibly where the next major COVID outbreak is going to be. You can predict a flu. You can yes. predict, um, you know, a wide, you can predict the temperature, uh, you know, yes. over the course of, the, you know, number of years. Um, I, I think that naturally we're inclined to have the abilities of the future and we have the technology to even further our futuring. But at the same time, it all comes back, I think, and you put it in your books quite well. So, um, you know, having the structures in place as an organization to be able to future, um, to make that a priority and to plan um, for, you know, those possible um, outcomes and to ensure you have those structures within your organization um, ready for if something was to happen. And I think that and this is, I think, a human being type of thing, not just an organizational thing, but human beings, big organizations, is that I think even though we future, we're really much a pe uh, people that don't like to plan unless we really have to. We're really put into that strife of having that in our face to do something. Because I think sometimes, I think naturally inclined, we may be not necessarily lazy, but we're not going to take a lot of action unless we really have to. I mean, that's just my opinion in that oh, regard. Absolutely. Well, first of all, futuring makes your hair hurt. <laughs> you know, if I'm playing chess with you, and I'm not a great chess player, but if I'm playing chess with you and I move a piece to a, to a square, I hope that I'm thinking that if I move to that, if I move to that square, then then that Matt's going to move this piece to that square. And do I want that to happen? Because I see the future on the chessboard. Uh, and I think what we're driving at again is capacity and dispositions. It's funny, when you look at, if you look at uh, cultural attitudes towards time and future, uh, United States, Americans are generally very short-sighted. We, 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 want, we want quick results and quick satisfaction. And if, and if you look at uh, other cultures, you'll see that they don't think that way. And uh, sometimes we suffer for that militarily. That's I guess, true in the past 50 years for sure. And sometimes we suffer for that because we don't tend to think along those kinds of lines. And where should it begin if it doesn't begin in, 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 these, in schooling? Uh, where, should, where shouldn't it begin where it's a, a, a leadership? And I, by leadership, I don't necessarily mean the people with the stripes on their shoulder. Yeah. Leadership, uh, stakeholders have uh, been taught to, uh, forgive the word again, systematically, routinely use uh, futuring skills and competencies that exist that aren't really that hard to, to uh, apply as long as you make the time for it to happen within you know, the busy days that everyone has. Every time I teach a uh, leadership course, especially the leadership courses in change, I bang them pretty hard with a simulation that I've got uh, coming out uh, called alchemy, which is to say, I'm talking about turning, you know, lead into gold uh, through a catalytic process of 
enabling people to, to co-empower each other with those, those skill sets I'm talking about. None of these are foreign. They're, they're, these, these are skill sets for the most part that are out there, but haven't been taught to leaders to uh, embed into their practices. Because leaders, and I'm being a wise guy when I say this, leaders get caught up in managerial yeah. uh, exigencies, to use a big word, uh, who threw the pizza across the floor in the cafeteria things and don't make the time. Remember, if you remember the Covey, Stephen Covey quadrants of what's important and not urgent and this kind of thing, urgent and not important, to spend more time in what's important but not urgent so they can plan for that. I mean, and, and another piece to look at, uh, I'm from Long Island and I'm pretty sure what I'm talking about it applies across the country. And Matt, since you're on the other side of the coast, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong <laughs> about the other side of the, of the street, uh, have yearly budgets. All you're trying to do is figure out how to spend the money that you think you're going to have on the things that you still want to hang on to when you get to the end of the school year to perpetuate that. Instead of really thinking about where are we going 10 years from now? What do our children need? What, is it, what does society need? Uh, and how can we adjust what we do to align ourselves, our probable futures with our preferable ones? So that the preferable transformative futures are the ones that we want to promote and nurture rather than just uh, muddling through. Yeah. I would, I would accuse us of, of muddling, not just about pandemics and God forbids. Muddling, we, we don't get paid to really project and transform. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. And it, it comes, the whole, the whole budgeting thing is a great analogy towards why we don't future really well at, in, the, in the United States or as in educational organizations because we're focused on this year. We're not focused five years down the line. We're focused on spending this year's money versus, you know, why can't we spend the money, you know, on these programs for five to 10 years? You know, it's the thought is that we need to spend the money now. And that's kind of the, the now mentality in regards to the budgeting. And it, it, and that, and that just systematically creates problems for going down the line. Perpetuates mediocrity. Yes, it, it perpetuates just survival to me. <laughs> now, if you take technology, for example, and you have all those biceps in, in technology, what you're trying to do is obviously, you know, provide the infrastructure, the hard infrastructure, uh, and, and you're trying to develop uh, teachers to change their dispositions about what technology can, can do for their instructional practices. Yep. And I would dare say the hardest part is the second part than the first. Much harder. Isn't it? And, and the reasons for that is, or, you know, 20 other dissertations in addition to the one you wrote, okay? Uh, but it, but it, also, it also speaks to when someone says, well, we have this technology, why aren't we, you know, why aren't we changing the Western world? <laughs> Some of the problems with that is that when, when you sit down with a technology committee, and I've run my share of those, to, tech, to do a technology plan out for five years or whatever, whatever the numbers were. And the first thing you'll hear is, well, we don't know what the technology would be like 10 years from now. Yeah, I suppose so, but, but would, we know, would we know what to do with it if we knew what it was? Is the more important question. And why we want to use that technology yeah. to embed it into, into uh, effective practices. Uh, I don't know where I read this, but um, someone read, said about a couple of years ago that 
a new job that's up coming up the road within this decade is something called worm engineer. And the reasoning behind it was that there are so, so many landfills all around the country that we haven't prepared for, for the most part, that one way to break down the landfills is to introduce earthworms into all of these landfills. So they, they'll turn what they can turn out of the landfill that's organic into something we could uh, recycle into farming or whatever. And so we're gonna need worm engineers. Now the question is, are there, are there any college degrees going on about worm engineering or, or is, there, is there a course in high schools about, not about worms, but about skill sets and uh, uh, competencies that they'll need, that, we, that they can universally plug into jobs we haven't even uh, necessarily futured for yet? Have we done yeah. that? Yeah, no, and it, I, I think those are, are, are great points because, um, I mean, you could argue that you could say like maybe a biochemistry class along with uh, a, a gardening class. And, yeah. I mean, it could be uh, a mixer role type of courses, but there's not a course that exists about, um, I don't even know in high schools. I mean, well, I think also the worms would be bioengineered, by the way. Uh, they'd be genetically engineered it. to, uh, you know, Good make sure you. that those processes are, um, you know, they're, they're going to produce as much map the type of matter that we want um and more efficiently so i'm sure that they'll be uh engineered so there's gonna be a genetic piece to it as well but yeah like uh, like you said those don't exist and and i think just in terms of for organizations as well as people to try something new and it be, takes hold is i always tell my students and i've written about this in a new book that i'm writing the, the, and i wrote in my dissertation as well the diffusion of innovations theory by Rogers, which basically yes. states that you need to prove and demonstrate this time and time again that this new innovation is more efficient and effective before uh, anyone is going to really replace what they previously done to try and complete that similar task. And if you can't prove that it's more efficient and effective over time, then people are not going to take, uh, you know, they're not going to um, discontinue the old practice that may not be working that well or be really ineffective. So um, I talk a lot about that when we want to change the behavior or if we want to change, you know, a teaching practice. Um, it, it's something that is you build over time um, to show that innovation is working and more effective. Um, so yeah, that's, that's why I really like to talk a lot about um, and I think that that goes along with futuring quite well because um, these new things that we're developing, um, I talk a lot about this in design thinking as well as fusion of innovations is that these new, these new innovations or these new things that we're wanting to try to do, they're only gonna be as good as whether they're gonna be used or not, right? If you put a new type of software on a computer, um, they're only gonna be as good as people using them. And then in the classroom, for example, our teacher is gonna be using this um, new tool or app uh, along with you know, the right pedagogy to make it, you know, to amplify the learning or they're just gonna be using it, it, it you know, really basic and it's not really doing much. So those are, those are definitely things that I think about. 
If we're talking about transformation or we're talking about adaptation. Yeah. I did that alchemy simulation I talked to you about another, uh, several times with, with principals and superintendents when they, they developed all these scenarios about what the future might look like in their school systems. And I got it to, brought them to the last point and said, do you choose to adapt to what you think the future scenario appears to be, prob probably appears to be, or do you choose to transform away from it? Uh, almost all of them said adapt, which really bothered me. I understood it, but it really bothered me. So, and so to come back to your point, by the way, I love your idea about the bioengineering of the worm. So really what you're talking, and the garden club. So really what you're talking about is throwing a grenade into the biochemistry class and eliminating the biochemistry class and coming up with cross-disciplinary experiential instruction, which is very hard to plan for and very hard to design unless folks- uh, Understand the process, yeah. yeah. But, but that would be the way to go because uh, forgive the uh, cliche, but experience is the best teacher. Yeah, I agree. And if I can create experiences in my, in my high school or in my elementary schools, then and then we make room for students to draw conclusions, they transform. Or we have teachers and leaders transform. And I have a synonym for transform, which I, th I think is better than the word transform. And that is that... Uh, when you transform, you come up with new ways to realize. Oh, holy crow, I didn't think of it that way before. I never thought of it, I never considered that before. That, this, that sounds more uh, uh, reasonable and stirring than what I thought was, was the case. I think of the word relevation uh, that just you're realizing or you're, it's like yeah. this epiphany like, oh, this new or this different perspective, I can, I, I see it. So that, that definitely comes to my mind, but yeah, that realize that, that, that's a good way to put it instead of transform because transform, I think is something that you could say that is this big, large thing, but in reality, it could be the smallest little thing that you realize that is the big thing that transforms everything right or that that large pendulum swing or it can be the smallest yes. thing that you know just a, that little tick just changes you know the whole trajectory of the organization or your classroom or yes you know whatever yeah i, I don't know the answer to this because i'm not a scientist but i think if you want to change the dna of something you just got to have to change it one cell i'm not i'm not sure you have to, yeah you have to change one little one cell just change the DNA and then you have something different than, which may not altogether be necessarily be the best thing for that matter. But you know, to use that, continue with the pond idea for a minute. Now, there's inorganic and there's organic. Uh, and again, I'm not a science, you call it environmental teacher as such, but you know, if you think about a pond as an organic uh, living thing, whose intersystems, the lily pad and the frogs and the fish and the sunlight and all of that, all of that, all combine to create a balanced system in order for the pond to continue, in order for the, for the creatures who live within the pond to continue. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. And yet what we sometimes, often we, what we try to do is, you know, put a, a dam in the middle of the pond and send the water left instead of right, or to introduce a chemical into the pond to purify it or whichever. And what we're doing is uh, tampering and tinkering with things we haven't, we haven't really considered. And so I mean, a silly example, but a, a very practical one is if you 
go from half day kindergarten to full day kindergarten. What that stone gets thrown into the middle of the school pond. What kind of futuring do you need to do to adjust the whole pond to, to work with that change? Those are the kinds of things that don't come naturally to many school stakeholder leadership think tanks and superintendents and their underlings. It's not, it's, they don't make the room for it unless they've been taught how to do it and unless they introduce a culture of thinking and deciding and actioning that uh, makes that the priority rather than uh, let's worry about getting the budget passed tomorrow. Yeah. No, and, and I'm going to leave that there because I think that that's probably the, one of the most important things that, that you've said this entire, um, you know, podcast and just, you know, making sure that, you know, everyone within the school system, you know, thinks about this, spends time doing it and has the understanding of, you know, how can we future and make these decisions, um, you know, not only just thinking about now or this year, but you know, five to ten years down the line. So before we leave, I just wanted to ask you, what are what are some current projects that you're working on? I know uh, you have a couple books that are um, out right now. Um, so what would you like to share with our audience before we leave? Yeah, uh, are you can are you going to post my website? Or, or I will. It will be okay. in the show notes. Okay, that's great. Um, again, I have two very recent books out there, companion books. First book will be Futures Based Change Leadership, uh, which speaks about a lot of the things we're talking about today. And its companion book came out last winter called Planning by Futuring. Futuring is planning and it's sort of a, more of a how-to book for how to make the first book happen, so to speak. Um, my baby right now, well, I'm doing a lot of consulting, with, uh, working with some school districts who actually have drunk the Futuring Kool-Aid a little bit. I'm pleased that they're uh, they're really enthusiastic about uh, changing their lives or, or changing the school lives around a good deal is uh, uh, a simulation of, of it's out on social media now it's on that website that you're going to post it's called alchemy the leadership simulation I have ardent belief in that that that's going to people were to take advantage of uh, learning how to use it with their staffs uh, and their stakeholders uh, will do the experiential change that they need to uh, kickstart some some good futuring and meaningful futuring. And then uh, two of my colleagues, Dr. Al Pisano and Dr. Anthony Annunziato, my colleagues in a, a company called Leadership Redefined. And that website is uh, leadershipredefined.education. Uh, and that, um, I lost my train of thought, forgive me. Oh, we have a book coming out, I'm sorry, in probably the early winter or near the end of the school year out of Roman and Littlefield called the collective mindset and that book in incorporates a lot of aspects of, of the future in conversation but it also introduces uh, some reflective uh, processes that uh, and some other kind of choices that uh, uh, or processes again strategies that a district could use or a building could use to uh, transform the organization it doesn't have to be for a school actually but certainly since schools are the things we all care about, that's that's where we target it. So the collective mindset's coming out very soon. Alchemy is sort of out, but it's sort of in a beta right now that you can take a look at on the on the website that Matt's going to post up. And the two books I mentioned are uh, in uh, up in Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all, all of those good places. And I appreciate, by the way, before I forget, 
Now, the opportunity, first of all, to talk to you again, because you and I have only talked to each other a couple of times, but um, clearly uh, we have uh, a lot of simpatico between the two of us, and I appreciate that. And it encourages me too, because um, I'm a lot older than you, and it's nice to see somebody uh, uh, a lot younger than me who uh, has his own thoughts, but certainly uh, uh, agrees with uh, a lot of the principles that I'm trying to get some other folks to listen to as well. So I appreciate that, Matt, and I hope that we can continue to have these kinds of conversations. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for being on. This was an amazing conversation, and you're definitely someone that I look up to in education and, and just admire your work and, and your journey. So it's been great to have you on, and yeah, it'll be awesome to continue these conversations in the future. So thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. As you know, all of our episodes are on all the podcasting networks, and this will be uh, our 30th episode, which I'm just super excited about. And thank you for listening along this journey. Have a good one, everyone.